Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about straight time. <laughs> you said that like Bob Fosse. That was great. Yeah. Well, uh, it's welcome. Like a jazz hand version. <laughs> It really, I, I I was trying to sound gritty. <laughs> no, it felt more like straight time pizzazz. <laughs> okay, well, welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. I'm one of your hosts, Andras Jones. And I'm Brian Connolly, the other host. The also host. Why do we say the other? I'm also the host. Yeah. We're... The yeah. also host. The also host. My also host. I'm Andras Jones, and this is my also host, Brian Connell. <laughs> and uh, and we're. I feel like we're like two guys pulling off a, a heist that is just doomed to fail. <laughs> uh, we're we're about we're about to to dig into talking about 1978's Straight Time, starring Dustin Hoffman. And uh, before I get into the description, anything you want to say about it? Uh, I this is a movie that has been on my radar for years. Like working at the video store, everybody who worked there like loved this movie. And for whatever reason, like I just I knew I was gonna love it, but I had to wait for that right moment. Like you know those movies where you know it's gonna be good, and you just gotta wait for the right time to really like get excited. It's like Christmas; you don't want to blow it. Like you want to keep it special, and. Man, I'm so glad to finally watch this movie. Uh, this movie is great. It is not at all what I thought it was going to be like. I don't even know what I thought it was going to be like, but it definitely wasn't what this movie ended up being. It's so good. I am very excited to talk about it with you. Well, let's play a clip, and then I'll tell you about it. All right, Johnny. Take it easy. We're all right. He'll be here. Man, this is very unprofessional. All I'm saying is that you give the man ten minutes. He'll be here. It's all right. It's not all right, man. I'm definitely. You know, I've had it. Take, get me out of here. Is that him? Is that him? No, if it was him, he would have stopped. That's it. They're coming on. It's over. Let's go. We're still all right. We still can do it, man. Let's do it. It's over, man. Look at the people. They're coming out, man. I mean, I don't care if he shows up with a 20 millimeter cannon. It's over. Fuck it. Jesus, will you? Wait a minute, man. They'll see you. We're all right. This 
find more guys in there. Come on, let's do it. We're all right. Man, God damn it. I told you I'm not taking that game without a shotgun. You can't cover a fucking poker game without a shotgun, all right? The plan was to meet your friend here with the shotgun. We go in and do the job and we leave, all right? Now, we've been sitting here all fucking night waiting for the guy with the shotgun and you want to take it with your cat pistol and I'm telling you, it's very unfucking professional, all right? That's him. Tell him he's late. Straight Time from 1978, directed by Ulu Grossbart, is kind of like the shadow version of last week's film, The Hot Rock. Maybe the brunette version, shall we say. <laughs> Where the hot rock was breezy, straight time is gritty. Where the hot rock was hopeful, straight time is nihilistic. It's based on the debut novel from convict-turned-author Eddie Bunker, and it was originally intended as Dustin Hoffman's directorial debut, but as production began, Hoffman realized it would be impossible for him to inhabit the role and keep the detachment necessary to direct, and this led to the hiring of Ulu Grossbard, who directed Hoffman in the weird and underrated Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying Those Terrible Things About Me from 1971 about a Dylan-esque rock star experiencing a psychotic break. Straight Time is a very different kind of film. Uh, the plot is pretty simple. It, crazily simple, actually. It's a, a, a career criminal. Max Denbo is released from prison and slides back into a life of crime. That's pretty much the film. But with its ugly Los Angeles locations, sloppy crimes, and wall-to-wall -wall great performances from a cast that includes Harry Dean Stanton, M. Emmett Walsh, Kathy Bates, Teresa Russell, and Gary, and a very young Jake Busey, there's a whiff of Reservoir Dogs to it. And uh, yeah. Eddie Bunker also appeared in the movie Reservoir Dogs as Mr. Blue, so clearly Tarantino was aware of this film. It's a film that really sneaks up on you thanks to a soft-spoken but very intense performance from Dustin Hoffman that in its time was generally recognized by critics as being one of his best performances to date. And uh, it's, still, uh, it's, still, uh, a, it's still a great performance from a great actor really at the top of his game. He was right in the middle of a real great run of uh, roles at that time. So that's the film. That's uh, that's straight time. So why, why is, how is the world wrong about this movie? Well, in researching for this episode, I found that straight time definitely has its fans and it was a critical success when it was released. And yet I've had a hard time finding people who have seen it. I mean, I consider myself a pretty big fan of Dustin Hoffman's and for some reason I had always been put off by this film. I'm not even sure why, but now that I've watched it, it just seems like it's a film that really connects the cinema of the 70s to the cinema in, of the 90s in a way that makes it feel like a really important touchstone. And the New York Times agrees because they place it on their top 1,000 films of all time list. So maybe it's not that the world is wrong about this film so much as that I'm wrong that the world is wrong about this film. Um, and I was going to ask you more. I actually had to hear to ask you is like, do you, have you heard a lot of people talking about this film? But you already said that when you were working at Vulcan Video, this film does have 
a lot of fans among your friend group. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, and I mean, these are, you know, video store weirdos, so I don't count them as real people. <laughs> <laughs> like normal people don't know what the fuck this movie is. And I, I think like the hot rock, I don't see it come up a lot on 70s lists. Like you said, it's on this thousand best movies list. And a thousand's a lot of movies. That's a lot of but movies. Like, yeah. I, that's a lot. You're just kind of putting everything in there. For that. But like, this doesn't, like, it, it feels not talked about in the same way as like other popular crime movies of the 70s, like you know, Dog Day Afternoon or, uh, you know, like, what are, what are some other, like, you know, like Godfather, like movies about crime and crime people, uh, you know. I think it's like a cult thing, maybe. Like, people who know, know it's great. And the people that don't know, don't know whether it's great or not. They don't even know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the the author of the book that this is based upon. Because it feels like Eddie Bunker is really the jumping off point. He's basically the Max Denbo character. And he wrote the the book that this was based on when he was in prison. And when it was published, Dustin Hoffman bought the rights. And he actually plays a role in this film as the guy who is trying to hook up Dustin Hoffman with a, uh, with a heist or with basically a, a poker game that he can rob. And in reading about it, it turns out that was that was one of Eddie Bunker's criminal gigs was he wasn't the criminal, but he was the one who would uh, who would hook people up with like with scores. And he has this great line in the film. You know, what I'd like to do. Why don't you run me by that motel? We'll check it out. And we can go cut it out. Yeah, well, I don't drive you out there, but I'm not going to rob it for you. You have to do that yourself. You know, I got stomach trouble. No guts. <laughs> I love that line. I got stomach trouble, no guts. <laughs> he just he's not he doesn't want to go in there with him with the shotgun. Um but yeah, he was a, a career criminal who just kept getting taken back to prison or kept getting wrapped up in uh you know, in petty crimes. And there's actually one funny story where there was there were some cops had put some sort of homing device on his car, thinking that they would take him, that he would lead them to a drug pickup. But he actually chose that day to try and rob a bank. And so they just followed him to the <laughs> bank and busted him. <laughs> That's great. And in the film, you kind of see this is a, like this is a film about a guy, a criminal who is super intense, but he's not like... It's weird. He's like both a really good criminal and also a really bad criminal. You know, yeah. and it's those the scenes are so tense when he's like they'll they'll rob a bank. So he and Harry Dean Stanton will be trying to rob a bank and he just stays there lo way longer than necessary, tempting fate. And it just it really ratchets up the tension. And that's part of. Does, do you get the Tarantino feeling from this? Because I oh, definitely. I, I mean, it, I mean, I don't think it's an accident. There's no like if you cast Eddie Bunker in your movie as a bank robber, then like clearly you watched like the one movie at the time that was based on one of his books. You know, like <laughs> yeah, like there's, there's no way that it's not. There's not a thick yeah, like that whole scene, that whole bank scene. 
And when they're running away and they're running through the streets and they're vain and things just go horribly sour, that feels so much like Reservoir Dogs. Like that whole part where they're just running through kind of like the back alleys of L.A. or whatever. Um, yeah, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. So uh, the name of the book that this uh, that this was based upon is called No Beast So Fierce. It wasn't called Straight Time. And. Oh, and. uh and what are some other films that Eddie Bunker wrote? So the another Reservoir Dogs connection, uh, Animal Factory, directed by uh, Steve Buscemi, is a movie based on one of his books. And that's like a dark, gritty kind of prison drama with Willem Dafoe and Edward Furlong, Mickey Rourke, and a really terrifying performance from Tom Arnold. Like that is definitely a mo- that's another movie that nobody really knows about anymore. But it's great. Like, definitely check out Animal Factory. And then recently, the Paul Schrader movie Dog Eat Dog, which I did not see, uh, which also has Willem Dafoe in it and Nicolas Cage. Did you see Dog Eat Dog? Dog Eat Dog is one of the... Yeah, it is an... It's good, but it is an ugly, mean film that just gets meaner and uglier as it goes along. It is... (laughs) That's what I've heard. Yeah, it's, it's... I mean, it's got great actors doing great stuff, but it is it is not I don't want to say I don't want to say it's not a fun watch because it's so mean and nihilistic that it is kind of a fun watch, but you just feel dirty afterwards. <laughs> As opposed to Animal Factory. Now, forgive me, I only watched the first hour of it, but from what I see, it's a heartwarming film about a young man in prison who is uh, who finds a mentor in Willem Dafoe, who <laughs> takes him under his wing, and uh, and helps him survive prison. Isn't that how the isn't how the that how the I film mean, goes? Yeah, I mean it's not heartwarming in like the Hallmark Channel way, but I mean it's nice that he has a friend in prison. But it, the movie's still pretty dark. <laughs> You mean in the I mean, you mean prison. in the last hour it doesn't just keep go you know they don't just play a lot keep playing handball and pulling off hijinks, you know it's been a while maybe. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I guess I got to watch the last hour. I guess I got to watch the last hour. I guess if you watched just the first hour of Straight Time, you'd think it was about a guy who. Uh, well, is trying to go straight as opposed to a guy the, that that yeah. was to me the most exciting part of this movie and like we're gonna spoil the hell out of this so definitely like if you don't like that watch the movie from here on out but like the first hour of the movie you're really feeling for this guy like he's really trying to get a job he's trying to have a relationship he's trying to be good by his parole officer brilliantly played by M. Emmett Walsh who oh. you just hate you hate you hate him because you're like oh this guy is being harder on him than he needs to be he's so corrupt like he's really fucking over like D- Dustin Hoffman's character who's really trying to pull his life together and then the movie like on a dime just like totally sp- sp- play- switches around and is like no no this guy cannot help but be like a criminal and like he is gonna go like into some dark places and not just make his life go there, but like ruin all his friends' lives and just like, just bring everyone down with him. And it's almost like a compulsion, you know, by the second half of the movie, like he just can't stop trying to rob things. Yeah. I mean, we talked in the last episode about Quincy Jones's great score for the hot rock. And I feel like that score should have been on this film. 
and this score should have been on that film because David <laughs> David Shire's music, his score for this film, just makes it feel like when he gets out of prison, it feels like this is going to be a happy time, and like it it does not prepare you at all for what you're about to get. So it's really kind. Of, I mean, it it works because it's off putting, but I yeah. feel like that was a weird choice for yeah uh, for. For, I mean, Dustin Hoffman. He was like, even though he wasn't the director on this, he was he was an editor on it. He was a producer on it. He owned the rights. He, I, I, I feel like he's the one making the choices, and that was a weird so, choice. So why didn't he continue as the director? Just if you look at his performance, the intensity, and if you know his, this is a like right around Marathon Man when you know there's this classic story about him getting his getting a nerve exposed in his tooth for Marathon Man so that he could suck air through it and feel the actual pain of the Laurence Olivier (laughs) character torturing him and Laurence Olivier may be apocryphal but there's supposedly he said sometime you should try acting my dear boy to (laughs) Dustin Hoffman and so he was like super into the method of it and you've just like the intensity and the of this portrayal and this character it just seems like there's no way he could maintain that focus and also be running around you know telling people where to put lights and he just he needed someone to run the set and I feel like he still exerts a a a lot of creative energy over the film but it makes a lot of sense to me that it's this is different than a Warren Beatty performance this is different than a Woody Allen performance I can see doing those kind of roles and then flipping around and being the director but there's no Mm -hmm. way you can be playing Max Denbo the way that Hoffman is playing this character in every scene like you know we talked in the last one about George Siegel like putting the button on that that beat and not playing through the end like I feel like this is Dustin Hoffman he's playing through the end of every scene here this is <laughs> it's just like the intensity of his character and how much he communicates with silence and with his eyes yeah. like he, there's no explaining it's such this is really this is him he's given some great performances leading up to this and we can talk about where this sits in his filmography but this is Really, when he is just at the top, top, top of his game as an actor. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, you know what it's like to direct a film. Like, if he would try to direct this film playing that character, I feel like everyone would have got punched. Hate him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Uh, interesting enough, when he was the, attached as director, the original screenplay was by Michael Mann. Which totally makes sense. Like, I feel like oh, yeah. this sort of feels like a Michael Mann movie. Definitely feels like a Michael Mann movie. So I wonder why, when they switched directors, why they dumped his script and went with Alvin Sargent and all the other people wrote the new script. But, like, like it definitely feels like what he couldn't do here, he made with, with Thief a few years later. Like, another sort of, like like lifelong thief, like, just trying to get good, but at the same time can't help but be a thief. And so, like, this has Michael Mann all over it, even if they didn't use his script anymore. Yeah, yeah. It really feels... You can feel the tone of that. Did did Michael Mann ever work on an Eddie Bunker 
thing after this, or did he just take that no. feeling and then bring it into films like Thief I, and Heat? I want, and... I, I want to say he had, I want to say he had Eddie Bunker help with the making of Thief, like be like a technical consultant. I want to say that I saw, I remember reading that somewhere. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure I think something like like there because I think he had a very intense relationship with Eddie Bunker when adapting the book. I think they hung out a bunch and talked a lot. And what's great about Eddie Bunker showing up in this movie is he really does look like an older version of the Dustin Hoffman character. Like they look the same, <laughs> like the hair and the facial hair and like the, just like the, it's like, if def, they definitely aren't hiding that the, the Max Dembo character is supposed to be a stand in for Eddie Bunker. So yeah, let's, let's, let's start to break down this film a little bit, go through like, I didn't really lay out the intricacies of the plot and there's some really, I don't want to say fun. It's kind of fun. There's some yeah. really great stuff going on. Like, compared to the hot rock, there's nothing in this movie that's fun, but yeah. <laughs> compared to reservoir dogs, there's a lot in this movie that's fun. So one of the things that I noticed that I really liked upon second watch is that you see that from the, the first thing that Dustin Hoffman does when he gets out of prison, he goes and gets a hot dog and then tries to walk away without paying for it. And <laughs> you sort of see, even though on the one hand, you, you see him being like, I'm going to try and do everything that my parole officer says and follow all the rules and do all this. You also see that at every point he is pushing the limits. So he tries to steal a hot dog. And then there's one point when he's doing an employment test to, to show that he can type and they call time and he keeps typing and he just, he, he yeah. can't, the guy just cannot obey the rules. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> it's like, and then when you're first watching it, all those things just sort of feel like idiosyncratic qualities. But then when you look at it, at, when you know where it goes, you're like, oh no, this, just because the music seems happy, this guy is on a, He's on a collision course with going back to prison from the second. Like, I should have just arrested him for stealing that hot dog and saved everyone a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you definitely can draw a line from him not stop typing to him robbing the jewelry store and Harry Dean Stan being like, we need to go now. Like, the time is up. And him being like, no, 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 I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. Like, he just it's like a sickness. Like, he just can't stop trying to break the rules. Even his own rules of like, he was the one who said we should get out of this jewelry store on time. And then he's breaking his own rules of like, no, no, I'm going to stay longer and make it harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's really smart and really competent, but compulsive. And I feel like maybe I haven't read the book, but I feel like that's probably like the main point in the book is that he doesn't know how to live on the outside. Like he ta mm. he talks, there's a point when he's, and when he's having his uh, having a date with Teresa Russell, a very young Teresa Russell in this film, and he's talking to her about guys who feel safer on the inside. You can get killed with sharp anything, the end of a spoon. That's a lethal weapon. Even the end of a toothbrush. You can get hit in the yard. You can get it in the shower. You're in your cell sleeping. Someone can go by with a can of gas and throw it in. Somebody else throws in a match and you get torched. But you know that's the reality and you're living with it 24 hours a day. 
That's frightening. A lot of guys think that this is more frightening than being on the outside. Why? I don't understand. Because out here it's what you got in your pocket. It matters. On the inside it's only what you are. You're glad to be out, aren't you? That's that's who he is. It's like he doesn't know how to live on the outside. Um, so let's see. So we talked a little bit about M. Emmett Walsh, who plays his parole officer, but maybe let's give that a little bit more love because yeah. Oh boy, is this his first role? Like this is the earliest movie I can think of him being in. He was in a few things. It's funny. His second film, he plays an uncredited role in Midnight Cowboy. So I was wondering if maybe he got on Hoffman's watch or like Dustin Hoffman Mm. recognized him from that. And that's how he comes back to this one. Yeah, he's he plays such a good creep. Like there's definitely like his character feels very true and believable. Like I've never had a parole officer thankfully <laughs> but there's something about the way that he is a jerk and the way that he is corrupt feels so real like it's it's like very those all the scenes with him like you you fucking hate him so much and like it just feels like he's just like like you just wonder like is this is the guy treat everybody like this that he works for like this is terrible but he does it so well in like that great mm at walsh way where like the whole time He's never like yelling or being like, he's just kind of doing it. And he's like, I'm saying it like I'm saying something nice, but I'm saying something that you're not going to like to hear. <laughs> and I got to say, boy, we're, he is in so many things before this. It's crazy. Like, so just to give you some ideas, he's in Alice's restaurant. He's in Little Big Man. He's in The Traveling Executioner. He's in the film They Might Be Giants. A bunch of TV. He was in What's Up, Doc? He was in Serpico. He's in The Gambler. At Long Last Love. So I guess Bogdanovich liked him. Bound for Glory, Mikey and Nikki, Slapshot, Airport 77. And then in 78, he's in Straight Time. So he definitely had paid his dues leading leading up to it. But it does feel like if he's ever... I feel like... Everything he did before or after, I can't imagine anything is better. There's a scene when the first scene when they meet and he has this scene with Dustin Hoffman and Mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman, like this is two great actors sitting across from each other. They're they're playing such subtle beats of control Mm -hmm. and both, neither of them is, neither of them is playing the hard beat, you know, it's the way that they are sort of out, they're, they're jockeying for position, but both trying to be a nice guy. Like they're both mm-hmm. trying to be, to play the other's game, but you can just feel the hostility and the suspicion between them. <laughs> and that's yeah. just, that's just great acting. Cause that's not even, it's not really in the text. Yeah. Two other actors would play it a very different way is what I'm saying. Yeah. And yeah, and then when when the when they're they have their final blow up, <laughs> it's it's the first time that Dustin Hoffman unleashes his violence, and yeah, I love that scene. <laughs> that that scene is it's so shocking. Like I can't think of like a movie that does a turn that shocking because you really think like 
the movie's going to be going a certain way, like I said earlier. And then when he breaks, he like freaks out and it's scary. Like Dustin Hoffman's character freaks out and it's really scary. And it basically ends with him handcuffing, you know, Emmett Walsh to like the middle of like the freeway median and then pulling his pants down and just fucking leaving him there. (laughs) And then that's literally the last time you see that character in the movie. Like you don't see him again because you think that because you really think the movie's going to be. Oh, this is going to be this kind of drama where the whole movie is going to him him trying to move forward and this corrupt parole officer pulling him back until he goes to jail inevitably at the very end of the movie. And that's the movie. And I really thought that's what this movie was. And then once it's like that that turn and now it's like, nope, now we're just going to really spiral in a, out of control in a crazy way and follow this character on another trajectory. It was, it's so exciting when that happens. Yeah, it's like when you're like, it's oh, like I don't know what this movie is going to do Walsh now. Character, right? It's like, yeah, he's just gone. And then, <laughs> and yeah, and now we're now we're in this whole other movie where now he is just life of crime, Dustin Hoffman. Like yeah. he was the guy trying like, to be straight, and now he's yeah. not even trying. He's like, get me a gun, I'm back in the game. And so yeah, so now we're yeah. into his life of crime. Oh, and we should say that before this. Uh, the first thing he does after he gets a place and he gets out, of, he sort of gets himself set up a little bit. He calls his buddy, played by Gary Busey, who is another one of his, I guess, a guy he was friends with in prison who all, who got out of prison or maybe knew him outside of prison and they went to prison together or something. But he's also on parole and is trying to get his life together and he's married to Kathy Bates and I think her first film role and I've never seen her look so young in a movie ever. And she, and she doesn't have a lot to do, but man, she's good. Yeah. Like the hers, she has a scene where, uh, she basically tells Dustin Hoffman, Hey, you know, I like you, but you know, maybe you shouldn't be hanging out with, with, uh, my husband. Cause it just could be bad for both of you. And that scene with Dustin Hoffman is great. And just like her, you can see why she's going to be a great actress, even in that first scene. But yeah, so she's married to Gary Busey and their kid is played by Jake Busey. And this is a great, I mean, 1978 was a great year for Gary Busey. He did this, he did the Buddy Holly story and he did Big Wednesday. That's got to be Gary Busey's best year. Yeah, that and the year when he did DC Cab. (laughs) Those are two best years. Okay. Uh, so there's a there's a great little scene around the the kitchen table with Gary Busey and Jake Busey and Dustin Hoffman and Kathy Bates, and it feels improvised. And basically, Gary is like showing showing off to Dustin Hoffman about how he's teaching. Jake, little Jake Busey, who's probably like six or seven years old in this, probably, would you say? Like, he looks like that age. That, that seems right, yeah. And he's like he's like a Bad News Bears age, and maybe a little bit younger. And so he's teaching him how to fight, and little Jake Busey, when, when uh, Gary Busey thinks that the fight is over and puts his hands down, Jake Busey clocks him, and he gets... <laughs> legitimately angry and like you just it's such a weird dynamic because they're actually father and son and yeah it just looks like well what did you think when you were watching that uh, it's at first it took me a second to realize it was jake Busey, and i was like that's totally a little Busey, 
my wife noticed it first. She's like, that's got to be Jake Busey. And the, yeah, the dynamic feels very like authentic. Like it doesn't like feel like they brought in some kid actor. Like it really, and yeah, when he, when things get a little tense between them, I think Gary Busey didn't know that was going to happen. I think that was a brilliant little Jake Busey improv. <laughs> or maybe was told by the director or Dustin Hoffman to like mess with your dad a bit in this scene. And let's have a little bit of tension at the dinner table. Yeah, it's good. It's, <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> It's yeah, and I is there another movie with both Buseys in it? Like I can't think of another movie with Jake and Gary in it together, like actually having a scene together, acting. Um, but he's good. They're both good. It's funny because Gary Busey's character seems like a little more together than Dustin Hoffman for sure, because he's got like he's got this wife, he's got his kid, he's got a house, he's got a job, and you know that you're in a bad way if Gary Busey's life is more together than yours. That, well, it, that should have been a red flag for Max. It Dilly. seems like it. But then when... Uh, so Kathy Bates basically says, eh, Dustin, maybe you shouldn't... Now, Max, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but uh, you're being around here right now is kind of bad timing for us. Why is that? Well, Willie's been doing real good, you know. He's been doing real fine. He's been working hard lately. And I know you're good friends, and, and he really loves you, but I just don't think it's good that he see you right now. You know what I mean? You're trying to tell me you don't want me to come down here no more? I don't mean to be unkind, but I just think it's better that he doesn't get around other influences and stuff. You're on parole now, Max. Mm -hmm. Well, you really shouldn't even be seen with Willie, right? I think I get the message. You make me feel bad. Why? You're just doing what you have to do, Selma. He has a certain amount of grace in accepting that. And then he and Gary Busey go back to his apartment where Gary Busey, I guess, like fixes with some hair. Like he does he do heroin or what does he do? He gets high in I a way. I think that's heroin, I yeah. think. Yeah. So he does heroin in Hoff Dustin Hoffman's room. And this leads to uh when M. Emmett Walsh comes and searches his apartment, he finds this book of matches that have been burnt. And even though Dustin Hoffman doesn't have any uh, track marks, uh, M. Emmett Walsh sends him back to prison. And the scenes mm -hmm. when he is in prison, there's you can just see this the switch from who who he is on the outside and the sort of just like. He goes from being a guy who you sort of see him being a human being on the outside and on the inside. He just he's like a shiv. He like becomes like this dead weapon kind of thing. And you and it's just it's uh, 
we haven't talked about it, but we, we talked a little bit about it, I guess, with Teresa Russell, but she comes and visits him. Mm-hmm. And the difference between the way he talks to her when they're on their date before he goes to prison and the way he just stone cold basically freeze like just is gives her nothing in the yeah. call. Like she's trying to cheer him up and he's just he can't even let her cheer cheer him up. There's something about that scene. It's such a really interesting and powerful choice that's mm-hmm. explored through silence. And again, this is just that's a great little Dustin Hoffman moment that mm-hmm. is heartbreaking. But it's heartbreaking in a way that demands no, that re- that requests no sympathy. I just think yeah. that like that's really punch in the gut stuff to me. Oh yeah. For sure. It's it's really... That scene is tragic. Um, so, point is, Gary Busey may look like he has his shit together, but as we will find out, he is uh, he's a weak link. <laughs> he's a weak link. A very, uh, very weak link. He's like, I'm, gonna get my, I'm practicing my drums. <laughs> Wants to get his band together again. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Teresa Russell character um are you a fan of Teresa russell i am and i don't think i've seen a movie where she was this young in it like i've seen like later kind of 80s stuff like nicholas rogue movies and and stuff but like not that i didn't know she was in this movie i feel like the only part of this movie i had a problem with was with her character in that I don't believe for a second that she would so quickly just go on a date with this guy, <laughs> you know, just because he asked her. Like, I'd see, she seems to get involved too fast and too willingly to just hang out with this guy who seems dangerous from the get-go in a way, in a weird way. That it didn't, I didn't feel like that was very believable. Yeah, and at the same time, I really like her character. Yeah, me too. Like, if it just you seems suspend weird. disbelief. <laughs> and also, I mean, it might just be a different time thing. I mean, this is, oh, that's one thing we haven't really talked about. I mean, this is totally a film of the 70s because just the fact that he's able to go and have this whole life of crime where nobody's really looking for him. Like, he he breaks his parole, and if he didn't, you kind of get the sense that if he didn't get back into crime, he could kind of just lay low and no one would find him. There are no cameras on yeah. the streets. There's no tracking. Yeah. There's no, like... It was a different time, easier time to be a criminal. Mm-hmm. You could get a, you could just <laughs> go on the lam and pick up young girls, and they would be, they'd let you stay in their place. Um, but I do, I really do like the dynamic between. I mean, I don't really, I don't like the dynamic. I, the dynamic between them is really troublesome. But I, all, but in the film, I feel like it works for me. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. This was her second film. The first film she was in was The Last Tycoon, which we spoke of. Oh, no. I'm sorry. That was Great Gatsby. She we were, uh, she was in The Last Tycoon with uh, Robert De Niro and then Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman. So she's doing pretty good for pretty, herself there. Pretty good. Um, so, yeah. So basically now we have uh, Dustin Hoffman has busted out of... Well, not really busted. He gets out of prison and he steals his parole officer's car, leaving him pantsless on the side (laughs) of the road. And he this is when we get into his life of crime. Um, 
he goes and seeks out a character named Manny, played by Sandy Barron, who will be familiar to fans of Seinfeld. He played like he played like Jerry's dad's seedy friend at the, the like the retirement community or something like that, like the family friend on Seinfeld. Yeah, he played the character of Jack Klompus. Uh, listen, Mr. Klompus, uh, it was really a nice gesture of you to give me the pen, but I don't really need it. You what? I mean, it's a terrific pen, but I think you should keep it. Well, I mean... You take it. All right. <laughs> no, Jack, you've got a hell of a nerve taking that kid's pen. Jack shows up in a lot of episodes of uh, of Seinfeld towards the end of his career, but this is towards the beginning. And anyway, he's playing the, I guess, the owner of this bar, and Dustin Hoffman wants him to give him a gun. And he's like, I don't have a gun, but he gives him this little, like, almost like a, like a it looks like a, a toy gun that goes with <laughs> a kid's, like, cowboy costume yeah. for Halloween. <laughs> And he immediately goes and uses this crappy little gun to hold up a liquor store and steal the money. And while he's doing it, the bu- the bullet falls out of his gun. But he gets away with it <laughs> again. Yeah. 1978 was a good time to be a criminal. No cameras. You just walk in, point a fake gun, uh, not a very good gun at someone. They give you the money and then you walk out. <laughs> oh, and then he goes back to try and get, uh, to try and find a big score and that's when he meets the Eddie Bunker character who tells him about this poker game that he can hold up and that's when he goes and seeks out his buddy Harry Dean Stanton <laughs> oh he's so good in this movie he it's a good meaty role for for Harry Dean Stanton i i love him so much speaking of meaty <laughs> i know you're a big fan of strange <laughs> burger scenes in films and we meet harry dean stanton in the backyard of this little like valley house again all of these scenes all these settings just feel like so much out of the tarantino universe like it's just like this version of la that doesn't have any palm trees doesn't have any glamour doesn't have any of the sites that you think of as hollywood or los angeles but it's the real los angeles and this yeah, backyard yeah. really feels like that. And so Harry Dean Stanton is married to, or he's with his a, a girlfriend named Carol, who keeps bragging to Dustin Hoffman about all her ex-boyfriends who he might have known in prison. And uh, <laughs> she actually was married to uh, the cinematographer Haskell Wexler, the oh, actress Rita Taggart. But so in this scene... She's making burgers for Dustin Hoffman and Harry Dean Stanton. And the burgers look really good, but then Harry Dean Stanton is holding his burger with his cigarette in the same hand. (laughs) And that really, I I don't know, you were disturbed by the way that uh, Alden Ehrenreich (laughs) held a burger under the table, but I'm way more disturbed by someone trying to eat a burger with a cigarette hanging out of one finger while they're, it just seems like that would be really un, like not very tasty. 
I don't know, but like it's like maybe it adds like a smoky taste. Like maybe it's like liquid smoke, but you cut out the middleman and you just inhale some smoke, take a bite of I mean, can you picture Harding Stan eating a burger any other way? Like I'm sure that's how he ate breakfast cereal. I bet he had like raisin <laughs> bran and a, and a cigarette in the same hand. Like that I don't think that man ever stopped smoking. Uh and it didn't slow him down. You know, he lived to be very old. Like I feel like that's just how he eats a burger. I, I'd be worried about accidentally biting the, the cigarette like this. I, my brain wouldn't be able to yeah. like, I would just like, if I was like talking, if I'm talking, I'm eating or like you get some ash on the top of the, of the burger bun or something. Yeah, that no, that's, yeah, you'd put the cigarette uh, down, take a bite, put the burger down, take a smoke. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> those burgers do look good though. They're like big and thick. Like those look pretty good. They do look there. They look like del- delicious burgers, but it's funny because so she makes the burger for him, and they're sitting there, and then she goes to like get something from the kitchen, and Harry Dean Stanton leans over, and it seems like it's a really idyllic. This is she's a good looking lady, and he's doing well, and he leans over and he's like, "Get me out of here! They're killing me. I can't make this scene anymore. Get me out of here." <laughs> I need to get back to I need to get back to crime, man. I'm going to this sitting in the backyard eating burgers with this beautiful woman. I I can't I can't take it. I want I want to push the boundaries of the law. So I just but the way he did, delivered that line just like get me out of here. I just loved that. Very. <laughs> did you notice like this movie is a great tour of like seedy steakhouses. Like they go, I've never seen a movie that goes to this many steakhouses. Like there's like little bars and then just like, like people just hanging out at a steakhouse, just having a drink, not even eating steak. Like that it kind of goes into your feels like real LA. Like this feels kind of like this parts of LA where like who, like the people live here, I guess frequent these weird establishments and have these weird kind of strangely large backyards and, it, def- it definitely feels very much like maybe this is where Eddie Bunker was living and he knew like this is the reality of his of life. It reminds me of that there's another scene. That's another scene where Dustin Hoffman, where Max Denbo shows us that he is a career criminal because he goes out to dinner with Teresa Russell and he doesn't have the money. And he's like, well, we could just walk out. Just like, <laughs> like you're you just can't you every your whole life is crime you just can't you can't help it you can't help it um, yeah <laughs> oh and that reminded me there's a there's a Teresa Russell story that are you familiar with this story are mm-hmm. you are you a fan of the who at all I am yeah so you know their their song Athena from the it's hard record from like I think 1982. That song was written about Teresa Russell. And hmm. the story is kind of funny. So supposedly... Athena, I had no idea how much I'd need her. In peaceful times I'd hold her close and I'd feed her. My heart starts palpitating when I think my guess was wrong. But I think I'll get along. She's just a girl. She's a ball. It's kind of funny. So supposedly... Pete Townsend and Nicholas Rogue and Teresa Russell and someone else all went out to dinner or some movie together or something. And Pete Townsend was hoping that Nicholas Rogue would direct the film of his project Lifehouse, which became the Who's Next album. And he'd been developing for years and years since. And 
So it looked like it was going to get made into a movie. But Pete Townsend got drunk and decided that he would rather steal Teresa Russell away from Nicholas Rogue than <laughs> get his movie made. And so he kind of blew up the whole deal. She turned him down and he went home and wrote the song Athena about Teresa Russell. So that's just a little, little bit of huh. Teresa Russell trivia and another oppor- an opportunity to drop the song Athena into this <laughs> podcast. There you go. She's just a girl. She's a ball. She's just a girl. So, uh, so yeah, so basically Harry Dean Stanton and Dustin Hoffman get set up to go and rob this poker game, but they're waiting on Manny to bring them a shotgun and Dustin Hoffman is like, I just go, let's just go in there and do it. And, and Harry Dean Stanton is like, no, we can't, you can't hold up a poker game without a shotgun, which I'd never really known. I'm it's like some important information. (laughs) I wouldn't. Like you just can't do it. Like I, I mean, I would think you could hold them. You could do it with a with a <laughs> pistol, but you couldn't. He couldn't. They wouldn't. He. But you get the sense of Dustin Hoffman tr- being so game to just. He just wants to crime. He's a guy who just wants to crime. The kids. He's a good kid. He just wants to crime, and uh, so they're waiting and it's freaking out and it's. This also feels very Tarantino-y, like. Definitely. Yeah, criminals, low low level criminals in a car bantering about how fucked up this particular crime is. Like they just can't get their shit together. And mm-hmm. then Manny shows up with no gun and with a bunch of excuses. <laughs> and this is when this is I feel like this is the turning point where Dustin Hoffman stops be really stops being Dustin Hoffman and starts being Max Denbo. Like there's something always that's a little bit cuddly about Dustin Hoffman and you sort of, like he's sort of lovable, but when he doesn't, when this guy shows up and he just beats the shit out of him through the car window and, and you're like, this guy is a violent, this guy is a real, is genuinely a violent criminal in a way that you just yeah. hadn't felt. Even in the M. Emmett Walsh thing, you sort of felt like it was justified. Like this guy really fucked with him. You could see yeah. him just, really going to town on him because we hated M. Emmett Walsh, but this guy, Manny didn't do anything. Like he's kind of, he's kind of a loser. Like all these guys are losers, but Dustin Hoffman's having none of it. And he just, he just piece of shit out of him. (laughs) And, uh, and then of course that leads to the, so he leaves that and goes and has this great scene, which actually did remind me of like maybe a scene from Michael Mann's thief where he busts into a pawn shop to steal some real guns by busting into the store next, like the building next door Mm -hmm. and then breaking in through the wall in this, you know, in, did you like that segment? I, for something, I found that really compelling. Yeah, no, I love, I love scenes of people just doing stuff. Like I like, and for some reason that definitely lends itself to like thief movies where it's like just the 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 process of how does he go through g- getting these guns? And there's no dialogue. It's just you're just watching him work, and it's very fascinating. It's very cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Again, show, don't tell. Like the way mm-hmm. that it's funny. If he was, if the other robberies he pulled, he did as professionally as he did the pawn shop robbery, things would have gone much better. Like, you didn't get the sense, like, if he pulled off the pawn shop robbery like the other ones, you'd feel like he'd still be in there stuffing watches in his pocket <laughs> the next morning. But instead, he's yeah. very cagey. He, the way he grabs the, gets the shotgun that he needs and gets the guns he needs are, it's, it's very professional. You feel like, mm-hmm. why couldn't he be like that in the other robberies? I guess we wouldn't have a movie. <laughs> yeah. So, is there, so I guess... This is where we're leading up to the big heist, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, they they case. Well, first he goes and takes he takes Teresa Russell to go look at some jewelry, and she thinks she's that she's looking at jewelry that he's going to buy for her, but they're actually casing the joint, and he's planning on stealing yeah. this jewelry for her. Uh, oh, I guess we we skipped the the bank robbery. They did a, they pull off a bank robbery. Uh, before the jewel the jewel robbery and they they get away with it and i don't know about you but my favorite thing about the bank robbery is their shirts god (laughs) damn those polyester shirts Ah, they look so good in them (laughs) (laughs) i mean this is a good like every all the people in this movie look really good like it's a good looking movie like this is some cool looking dudes, but not but like, but good in this like again in that worn like it really feels. It's like they look good to us, but you can kind of tell that in the world of the movie, they're all dressed a little like a little losery, except Teresa <laughs> Russell. But they like you kind of get yeah. the sense that they're not as cool in the world as they are to us in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Like. I don't know. I yeah. I feel like if they walked into a club, like I feel like they kind of feel like those characters, like they're not as over the top, but like those characters that Steve Martin and Dan Aykroyd played, like we're, oh. we're two guys just looking for chicks. <laughs> <laughs> they're dressed like that. So you kind of feel like if they walked into a real Hollywood party where Dustin Hoffman and <laughs> Harry Dean Stanton might be, they'd be like, no, oh, who are these? Who are these? jablonis or whatever you <laughs> but uh yeah. but when they walk into that bank with the guns and the the polyester shirts i just oh god it made me it made me yearn for a life of crime i'd like to be a part of that um maybe i like i wish i don't know i'm now i'm getting fanciful i just have this image of of if we were if if we ever are someplace the same place for halloween we should go as uh, go to something as <laughs> Max Denbo and the Harry Dean Stanton character. I'm ri- I'm into this. <laughs> I guess you you're right now you're rocking the Max Denbo mustache I hear. So I I am. Yeah. We'd have to inspired. fight over who has the stash, but Yeah, it's uh he because uh, he looks so good in this movie that I like when I was shaving the other day I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. Why not? I'm not leaving my house right now. Like I don't care. No one's gonna make fun of me. So I definitely have the, the, the it's called the Denbo. I have a Denbo right now. It looks great. <laughs> so, yeah, so they pull off the one bank robbery and then they decide to take it to the next level and hold up this jewelry store in Beverly Hills. And Harry Dean stands like, I don't know. Beverly Hills is rough, man. I, I, it scares the shit out of me, Beverly Hills. Why is it? 
Guy, I don't know. Well, how many cops they got there? They got a hundred cops. Six square miles, you know. That's a, you know, twenty cops to the square mile or whatever. <laughs> you can tell again. It's just like the whole film, from the second that Harry Dean Stanton says "Get me out of here," Dustin Hoffman is just raising the stakes and putting them in more and more precarious situations, which sort of culminates when he picks. Gary Busey to be their getaway driver. Ah. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. what kind of professional puts Busey behind the wheel? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a big mistake. <laughs> I feel like Jake would have been a better getaway driver than than Gary. Yeah, five-year-old Jake Busey would have been more, yeah. <laughs> so... So we give it away. The, the, the heist goes bad. The jewel heist goes very bad. They, uh, they stay too long. Dustin Hoffman really wants to find this particular uh, piece of jewelry that he wants to get for Teresa Russell. And this leads to them staying too long. And they go out the back door. And Gary Busey has left, took the car, and just leaves him hanging. So they're running through the streets of Beverly Hills trying to get away. And there's a there's a weird little shootout over a fence, and yeah, Harry Dean Stanton, the character we kind of like the most, gets shot, and he's out, he's gone, and uh, this does not sit well with Max Denbo, and we start, and then we really see his brutality when he goes and exacts his vengeance on poor Gary Busey, to be found dead in his garage by his <laughs> his young wife, Kathy Bates, and poor little Jake. Uh, now, do you think, like, in, you think, when you're thinking about this, do you think they're better off without Gary Busey? No. I think they're probably better with Gary Busey. You I th- bet he made, like, some good Sunday night dinner, like, you know, told some good jokes. Like, yeah, I bet he was fun to have around. So he has a heroin problem. And so he dabbles in bank robbery. <laughs> you know, he seemed like he, like Kathy Bates seemed to like him. It seemed like when she was talking to Max in earlier in the movie, it's sort of like, we have a good thing. Don't ruin it. So that's implying that she enjoyed him around. I think. Yeah. But it also makes me think that she's also like any little thing could set my husband off. True. I'm yeah. stuck with this. Like you just sort of feel like if they didn't have a kid, I don't think she would have waited for him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think in a way, Dustin Hoffman's doing her a favor. She might not feel like that way and feel, feel like that in the in the moment. <laughs> but yeah, Gary Busey is really the villain of this film as far as I'm concerned. Oh, come on. <laughs> Leave Busey alone. <laughs> he well, it's if it weren't for him, Harry Dean's like if it weren't for him, this whole thing. Yeah. Like. Max Denbo but would have maybe, just gotten away with everything. This guy isn't on a but, collision course with going back to prison. Yeah, but like, you know, it's Dustin Hoffman character's fault for staying too long in the jewelry store. If he had left on time, I bet the car's waiting. I bet Gary Busey was just like, alarm's going off. Where are they? Where are they? Okay, I have a wife and kid. I can't get busted again. Goodbye. You know, like you broke the deal. Like, so I'm going to hightail it out of here. That's kind of how I saw it. Like, I bet he would have been there if they did it the way they had planned it. 
Maybe not. Maybe he drove away long before that and was like, eh, no, I don't no. feel like okay, doing I, this. I'll give it to you. The, I'll tell you, that last scene, the last scene with Gary Busey and Dustin Hoffman is just, again, just great. They're really... Mm-hmm. Gary Busey seems really pathetic and Dustin Hoffman seems really tough and torn and mm-hmm. determined. And, you know, it's got to be a tough thing. I'm wondering about that, like... Uh, so Dustin Hoffman's this little guy who has to project all this strength and the way that there's a lot of subtle ways that the film does that. Like a lot of that scene, Gary Busey has been pushed onto this couch. And so Dustin Hoffman gets to look down at him a lot in the way mm-hmm. it wouldn't that it wouldn't be if they were doing the scene face to face. So he takes care of Busey and then he ta- he goes on the lamb with Teresa Russell, but just for a minute. Just for a little minute, because then they hear over the the radio about a dazzling robbery. No, not <laughs> this is no there's no there's no there's nothing dazzling about the reporting. They're talking about this terrible robbery <laughs> where a police officer was killed and Dustin Hoffman, Max Denbo realizes this is not going to go well. And I really love this. I love the ending of this movie. Did you? Mm-hmm. It's just so subtle. He just mm-hmm. they they go to this uh, little diner where the the owner of the diner or the 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 at least the woman serving the the coffee is played by Fran Ryan. And if you look if you if you look up a picture of her, you'll recognize her from so so many TV shows and movies of the nineteen seventies. She was always playing a waitress or somebody's mother-in-law or whatever just a great character actress who shows up in this sort of for about as long as charlotte ray showed up in the hot rock just to remind us Mm -hmm. that this you know this is just another great little character actress but we see that uh that he's gonna abandon Teresa russell there in probably the only heroic thing he does in the whole movie really it's like the only good thing he does in the whole movie is leave her. Yeah. And I love, it's just, it's great. I feel like it's great. You you know, it's a, something they loved in the script. They really hit the, hit it on the head right at the end. The last lines, he gets in the car and she comes out and she's like, why can't I go with you? And he just looks at her and says, cause I'm going to get caught. <laughs> and, you know, bum bum, it just hits, and then he they, he drives off, and they do this really nice thing, where they show his uh, his prison picture from when he was arrested yeah. right after this in '72. Like we assume this crime happened in the summer of '72, because then he's arrested on August eighth, nineteen seventy-two, and then they go back to a picture when he was arrested in July of '66, and he looks like Dustin Hoffman from The Graduate. And then they mm-hmm. go back to his juvenile arrest, and there's a picture of him from 1954 when he was just a kid living in New York. And that's our movie. Yeah. Uh, anything else? You anything you want to say in in wrapping up our conversation about it? Um. No. I like this is just a good solid movie that people should check out. Like I like I don't know if it's hard to find or not. Like, were you able to find this easily to watch? Um, I did through my 
you know, I I, I went. Ways in, we I won't speak. <laughs> I had to seek. I had to go into a steakhouse in the in Burbank um. and talk to Manny, and he hooked me up with Mac with Max Denbo, um, who or Eddie well, Bunker, cl- who told me where I could find a copy of Straight yeah. Time in a poker game if I held it up. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's out there. Th- this is yeah. This is just like one of Dustin Hoffman's best performances, and clearly something with him and Michael Mann clicked because then Michael Mann cast him way later. As the lead in that show, Luck, that Michael, that David Milch show that Michael Mann produced and directed the pilot, oh. and and like so, clearly there was some let's get back together and try it again sort of thing. Per- perhaps, uh, I, you know, um, yeah, like this, this it's just a, such a good movie. Like, yeah, every actor is amazing. Every actress, like, it, I feel like there's no fat in this movie like it just every scene works for it and builds on it like there's no meandering like even though it has scenes of people not talking and doing stuff like it feels like every scene counts like every scene is counts for telling you about this character of max dumbo and am i did i make this up in my head but like i i feel like every scene dustin hoffman is in this movie like it doesn't follow anyone else like it feels like it's on him the entire time or at least it feels that way yeah yeah i don't think there's like, I like there's not like a scene of some other people talking about him or it's just like it really feels like you're just stuck with this guy through the whole thing yeah like it's really like they liked. cut away to like to Teresa russell worrying about him he comes back no. in the door and we see that she was worried about him yeah uh yeah so I, I really liked that part of it yeah, it's a real it's a real character study. Let's let's mm-hmm. let's take a moment here to place this in in Dustin Hoffman's career. So obviously he became a a major star with The Graduate, and then really solidified himself as one of the great actors of his generation with Midnight Cowboy, which is just sort of the just the opposite of the way you'd expect a. A, a movie star to go like okay well now, now i'm a movie star i'm gonna play a real hero but choosing to play ratso just i think yeah. won him a huge amount of cred then he does a film called john and mary which was directed by peter yates who directed the hot rock have you ever seen that mm-hmm. oh, i never heard of that one it's a it's a i feel like it's a very modern feeling film it's about these two young people who who are sort of maybe they're going to be lovers and uh Mary is uh Mia Farrow and John is Dustin Hoffman and there's a lot of them talking with each other but then we hear their inner monologues and their questioning about it it's just a, it's a it's a interesting little film then he goes then he does Little Big Man which is a you know a real hit and mm-hmm. Then who is Harry Kellerman and why is he saying those terrible things about me? Have you seen that one? No, I want to though. No, you really got it. Director, it's, like, that sounds interesting. It, it is a weird, it is a weird film, but I love it. It's so it's such a strange little movie, and it's he's clearly a Dylan analog, like he's supposed to be Bob Dylan, but like the basic the the premise is it's a guy who's being harassed by this guy Harry Kellerman. But we also think that Harry Kellerman is probably the Dustin Hoffman character just fucking with himself. 
<laughs> and uh, it has Jack Warden in it in a great role. Because uh, nice. Jack Warden is always great. And then he does yes. Straw Dog. So we're just seeing like, if you, just if you put the hits of The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Little Big Man, this is like 67, 69, uh, Midnight Cowboy 69, then Little Big Man is 70, then Straw Dogs is 71, then Papillon is 73, Lenny is 74, all the President's Men is 76. Marathon Man is 76. Like, this is just a run of hits in which he yeah. is acting up a storm and yeah. just just carving out. Like, I don't pe- think, I think people don't really understand, unless you were living through it at the time, what a huge presence as a movie star and what the kind of movie star he was how revolutionary mm-hmm. it was, even more so than like they sort of gets lumped in with Al Pacino because they're both short, ethnic looking guys who became movie stars. Yeah. But Pacino had a hard time really capitalizing, like, even though it sort of held up better over time, that run of the 70s, you couldn't really compare them. Dustin Hoffman was the star, and Pacino had some good films in there, but a lot of misses. Excuse me. A lot of misses. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, so this is 76 leading up to straight time in 78. And then right after that, we have basically Kramer versus Kramer, Tootsie and Rain Man with Ishtar in the middle. And those are, you know, with Kramer, Kramer versus Kramer, Tootsie and Rain Man are sort of like the big prestige things like that's. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's where the water, where the where the wave crested. After that, there really isn't anything that rivals that first run. But if you look yeah. at like, so uh, Rain Man is 88. And so between 67 and at least 87, which is Ishtar, you've got Dustin Hoffman for 20 years being the actor's actor in a lot yeah. of ways. And this is right at that crest. So, like between a marathon, between Marathon Man and Kramer versus Kramer, we get straight yeah. time. And this guy is so so far from the Kramer versus. Can you imagine if Max Denbo was the dad in Kramer <laughs> versus Kramer? That's a that's a cut and dry deal of who's not getting the kid. <laughs> like that's a like you don't need to have a whole trial for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, well, uh, so that's straight time. I really, I, I can't encourage people to check this one out enough. I love it. And, uh, and it's not, I don't want to say that, that, that Dustin Hoffman didn't do some great films afterwards. I feel like I love Wag the Dog. His performance oh, yeah. in that is really great. I Heart Huckabees is great. Um, do you have any, what do you, do you have any favorites of Dustin Hoffman's performances that you really love? Post eighty eight, or or just in general. Uh, I really love him in Dick Tracy, as as, as Mumbles. He's great, <laughs> so good. I think he's really good as Captain Hook and Hook. I think he's excellent in that movie. He's really funny and having a great time and looks amazing. Like to see Dustin Hoffman with curly black hair, like a big black wig, is is amazing. Um, that show, like I mentioned earlier, that show Luck is really good. He is, that's another really good, intense performance from him. Excellent. Yeah. Really amazing. Uh, in that, uh, and those are kind of the standouts for me, like post, 
post like that run that we talked about. Like he's definitely like he's one of the greats. Like it's like you, I bet like if I saw one of the ones I've never thought to see from the last thirty years, I bet he would still be really good in it. You know. Well, uh, did you see the Meyerowitz stories? No, not yet. Oh, that's good. I mean, everyone's really good in that one. Uh, that's a that's a really great film, the Noah Baumbach uh, film. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> I don't care what people say. Dustin Hoffman's the best. <laughs> I think people agree he's a pretty great actor. <laughs> um, we did, but uh, yeah, I'm glad to have watched that. And like you said, it was a great comparison to the last week's Hot Rock, where it was like every you couldn't think of a more opposite, but equally about a life of crime. Like I think people should watch him as a double feature. In fact, I feel like they should. People should watch them at the same time. Have, like have one on one. I, I would yeah. love to see yeah. these films running okay. like with one Same, in the top yeah. half of the screen and the other and uh, see a, how many times they line up. Because really, when I watch the good... beginning, they both start on the prison, the guy getting out of prison and yeah. the and one it's just like it's what is it like a weird statement of like like so the hot rock is in new york with this good looking blonde guy who gets away with everything the the straight time takes place in the valley with this you know little you know dark haired guy and grit and who doesn't get away with anything uh, <laughs> and you know, but it's... but uh but strangely Robert Redford, no love story, and uh, straight time is a good. There's a real. There's a real solid love yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> In the end, Dustin Hoffman gets the girl. There you go. <laughs> and then he throws her back. <laughs> he throws her back. Um. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm excited to you know watch that Harry Kellerman movie. Like I'm gonna definitely watch that. Sweet. Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt this show that you're probably enjoying, but I'm comedian Kevin Dombrowski, who you probably don't know. Joined weekly by my producer, Adam, a little bit more well-known than me, Hineker. Say hi, Adam. True. He's got a point. Uh, Dial it back. Each episode, I'll sit down with a very famous comedian that you probably do know, and if they're not famous, you probably know them anyway. And we'll break down what's happening in the world by making fun of all of it. This is Just Joking on the Paperhouse Network. No interviews, no arguments, just jokes. Now, back to your show that you were already enjoying. Okay, well, let's talk about let's talk about some of the things that you do when you're not uh, what do we call it? Like also host when you're not also hosting the world is wrong podcast. You, you also co-host, you also also host, well, it's confusing a podcast called the director's wall with your yeah. compatriot, AJ Gonzalez, in which you explore yeah. the filmography of one filmmaker. You're currently in the run of exploring Francis Ford Coppola's filmography. And, yeah. uh, why is it, why is it, Francis Ford Coppola ever worked with Dustin Hoffman? Yeah, that's a good question. Like he was, you know, the one of the big directors of the seventies. He did. He worked with all the other big actors like Gene Hackman, James Caan, De Niro, Pacino, 
But no, no, Dustin Hoffman. What? How about no Robert Redford? For... Did Coppola? Oh, Coppola yeah, did. Yeah, well, Great Gatsby. Like you wrote the script for Great Gatsby, so I'll count that. Yeah, but that he sure. didn't. I mean, he didn't choose. Like you could almost say that he he left the production to get away from Robert Redford. Maybe, yeah. But I mean, like it is weird that he didn't do anything. Still hasn't done anything with Dustin Hoffman. Like you think there had been some '90s thing. Like you think he would have been thrown into the. Uh, the rainmaker or something you know like you think doesn't happen would show up <laughs> in one of the later prestige ones i, I don't know he it's is in, i mean he is in runaway jury a different john grisham novel yeah. turned into a film maybe it's just says something interesting about coppola that he would rather make three movies with harry dean stanton than <laughs> make one single movie with uh, dustin hoffman like you know he he put his money on frederick forrest as opposed to dustin hoffman it just it adds to the interesting oddness of coppola in his decision making. <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's it's weird. So and he, he it is kind of odd that he did, he hasn't worked with either Hoffman or Redford considering that it was the 70s and those mm-hmm. were like major major guys. Yeah, I'm looking through yeah. this. Yeah, no. Yeah. And and he never did anything with Paul Newman either. So those are like the three guys from the 70s. It's shocking to me that didn't. But I mean, who knows? Like, but I mean, but I mean, like he turned down Robert, like Robert Redford, I think, was supposed to originally play. Um, Sonny Corleone. What was the mo- like, I think that's yeah, I think that was he was going to be in The Godfather. And he was like, no, nah, that doesn't work. You have to have someone who's actually Italian, you know, like. So, like, I think he wants. I mean, it makes sense why he liked Pacino and De Niro because he's just like, I want my Italian-American brethren to be represented on screen. But, you know, like, Dustin Hoffman could have very well fit into something, you know? You know, well, you know, Especially- well, Redford almost played the Hoffman role in The Graduate. That's interesting. Yeah, it would have been a very different film. <laughs> very different film. Has, wait. Has- Not a very good film. <laughs> Has Coppola ever directed? I'm just trying. I want to get in. I'm trying to dig in here. Has Coppola ever directed a film starring a blonde, a blonde male actor? I don't think so. Uh yeah. I mean, I mean, no. I'm, I mean, the I'm closest thinking. is Jeff Bridges in Tucker. Yeah, like Matt Damon. Matt Damon, in the Rainmaker. But those aren't they Val, Kil- Val Kilmer, like. Kind of, I I don't know. Yeah, but those guys aren't really blonde. No, not not like Robert Redford. Not like Robert Redford blonde. Yeah. yeah. So, hmm. not into... So maybe this needs to happen. He needs to make a movie starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Like, let's let's make like the COVID As old... movie with those guys directed by Coppola. <laughs> wow. Yeah, like, a, like maybe like All the President's Men 2. <laughs> or what if you have both characters from straight time and the hot rock team up to do a heist together and one is trying to play it by the rules and be this dashing guy and the other one's just a total fuck up directed by francis Ford coppola and his name is old man trying to pull off one last score i love it <laughs> <laughs> let's make it happen uh yeah so we can find you on your other podcast, other, other podcasts, when you're not hosting this, the other thing you host, called the Radio 8-Ball Show, where songs are picked at random to answer questions and 
Speaking of mustaches, you recently, when we're recording this, played some Shmushkin, your your favorite uh, singer-songwriter, Andy Shmushkin. Yeah, my first some, my first seasonal... client, uh, Andy yeah. Shmushkin. Sometimes I'm we get fan. mistaken for each other, but uh, there were, it, that's, that's crazy <laughs> because he's way more charismatic and attractive and soulful than I'll ever be. Uh, but yeah, yeah, we, we played his song, Punkin' Lovin', which is uh, uh, the perennial... Classic. You know, autumnal classic about yeah. it, it. People often think that it's a it's a funny song about having sex with pumpkins, but it's really a sad song about the way that people in a relationship <laughs> will find pleasure alone by themselves instead of joining together and 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 <laughs> sharing the, the the lusty pleasures of coupling. Uh, <clears throat> Mushkin's got a new song. Came out just Ooh. this, just for the hall, just for for this season. It's called "Best Boundaries," and uh, Ooh. I may I'll, I'll provide a link in the show notes. It's a yeah, the it's about Shmushkin. It's a lesson in 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 boundaries. It's called it's uh, the the chorus is I got the best boundaries and the biggest consent, and uh, <laughs> you can almost see like <laughs> Max Denbo could learn a lot. From Andy Shmushkin. <laughs> this is a guy who yeah. does not really have great boundaries or very big consent. He, he just the way he just runs into that into that employment office and drags Teresa Russell out of it after the big score. Yeah. Not a lot of consent going on there. No. Man, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, no. It, it, uh, Shmushkin, I'm I'm aware Shmushkin is very very influenced by Dustin Hoffman. Uh, I, I believe it. I it's like like I said, he rocks that awesome mustache. Like there's definitely a mustache similarity going on here. Yeah, the the fraternity of the uh, the hirsute upper lip. Uh, <laughs> you know, and we didn't really talk about it, but do you, uh, do you ever feel like like Jason Schwartzman is sort of like. Like all he wants to be is Dustin Hoffman. Like I feel like Jason Schwartzman is like if Dustin Hoffman, like when Dustin Hoffman became an old guy, the universe just gave us Jason Schwartzman to be to like basically be <laughs> the Dustin Hoffman of his of his generation. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of. He doesn't. Have, he lacks the intensity. Like he definitely is more comfortable feeling than Dustin Hoffman. Like he doesn't, he doesn't go for that emotional heights. I feel in the same, like you couldn't, like, I would love to see him try to do a role like a Dembo. Like I would love to see Schwartzman in like that, but like he definitely safely kind of likes to be in comedies, you know, like you're not seeing a lot of intense, you know, character studies that are dramas, but I definitely like, there's definitely, I can, there's definitely something in there. Like there's definitely... Like yeah, I I I I know I feel in what you're saying. Maybe sure. the reason that Coppola's that, never worked with Dustin Hoffman is because Dustin Hoffman reminds him of Jason Schwartzman, and he just doesn't like Jason <laughs> Schwartzman that much. He's like, he's like my nephew. <laughs> he's annoying. My nephew he annoys me. <laughs> you know, you, you never it could be. Not me though. I'd love to see a movie or, where where Dustin Hoffman. Well, I mean, they were. I mean, they kind of. They weren't playing father and son, but there was a father and son quality to I Heart Huckabees. Maybe that's one of the yeah. reasons I love I Heart Huckabees so much because I got yeah 
a double dose of Hoffman and Schwartzman. <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, I think we've done a pretty good job here. And now we get yeah. to... Uh, we get to turn our attention to another film from the 70s starring another prolific and short actor of the 1970s <laughs> from your it's your favorite film. We're going to be talking about your favorite My favorite film. And isn't it sad that my favorite film of all time the world is wrong about? What does this mean? What does this mean? So I'm excited to dig into like I'm very I'm always game to talk about 10 Man, uh, I'm ready for it. I'm excited. Just be clear. We just said 10, the Blake Edwards film, 10, starring Bo Derek and some other, some guy and some other people. Like, that's how I remember (laughs) the film from my childhood. (laughs) Bo Derek and then some other stuff. Some guy, some stuff. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm ready for it. I think this is going to be a great, we're, we're, yeah, great way to start 2021 with 10. Yeah, twenty twenty one ten. Yes, so uh, get get your get your Blake Edwards on, people. Get ready. Uh, start start learning your bo- your dance to bolero, and uh, get prepared for that. Of course, you if you want to write us any messages of uh, you know congratulation or condemnation, you can reach us at <laughs> contact at the world is wrong dot com. And if you'd like to check out uh, the film clips and the pictures we post, you could check that out at our Instagram account at the, uh, at the World Is Wrong podcast. And any other ways that any other information I should let people know about? I, am I am I leaving anything out, Brian? I mean, it's everything. I, feel, I always feel I always feel like there's just there's something I'm missing. Like I feel like I should end this like. And the the secret to life is, well, I don't. We don't have it. All we all we can do is talk about movies. So, yeah, the rest of it's up to you, folks. And just remember, you know, wherever you are, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. So, what'd you do last night? Oh, walked around. Meet anybody? No, nobody I know. Where'd you stay? You didn't show up at the halfway house. Yeah, I called you when I got in. Didn't you get the message? Called you? Yeah, last night I left the message. I guess it was with your answering service. Didn't get it? I left it. So where'd you sleep? In a motel. The conditions of your parole were that you were to go to the halfway house. That's another way to help you save money. Now, you uh, agreed to that before your release. Why did you go there? Because I just spent six years in prison. I just want to look at the lights. I want to feel free. I want to walk around and not have somebody tell me that I gotta get in bed at 10 o'clock. Max, I think you've got a serious attitude problem. I don't have an attitude. Can you tell me what kind of attitude you you want me to have? Well, you don't decide whether or not you go to a halfway house. I mean, you come to me, we discuss it, then I decide. I'm just trying to make you understand that I'm aware of the realities of my situation, that I'm not fated to be a menace to society. I'm not gonna go out there and hit somebody over there. My friend, I see that you're going to force me to deal with you. Look, I'm looking at your seat here, and I see that you've got juvenile offenses dating back to when you were 12. Right. So you got auto theft. I see you got breaking and entering. All this leading up to this burglary one. Yeah, I just served six years for that chicken shit rap, you know? Chicken shit. You had a gun. Yeah, but I didn't use it, and I didn't hurt nobody. Well, what was in your mind when you put it in your pocket? 
just took it along. I'm doing court. I'm aware of the fact that you have this power that, you know, you represent the state, but, you know, I think that you can give me a little leeway, you can be flexible. I was just hoping to get some trust from you, that's all. You've got to earn the trust. I have. I just want to be like everybody else. I just want a decent job, I want a decent place to live. I want somebody to love me, I want some clothes on my back. I can have some self-respect. I gotta get going. I try to be straight with you, sir. I understand that I shouldn't have done that last night without checking with you first. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll make a deal with you, Max. If you find a place to sleep today and a job by the end of the week, you don't have to go to a halfway house. Is that fair? That's fair. I, I, I appreciate that. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.